It's always a joy for me when we have communion. And I am constantly surprised by the scripture verses <laughs> that seem to come up on those Sundays that it is so appropriate. So here we are on the first Sunday in September. And I have titled this sermon, Food, Hearts, and Eyes. <laughs> and in thinking about the scripture here uh, of what happened on the day of the resurrection as two men, one named Cleopas, make their way to a small village called Emmaus. And uh, that has been something that has impacted my life personally uh, for many, many, many years. I, it's been one of my favorite Bible stories, I guess, in the New Testament, and has, every time I go back and start to read it, it, it brings new things, new impulses. And today, I, I, or last night, yesterday morning, as I was writing on uh, my sermon and working it all out, I, I just got to thinking about the differences that we have experienced in people eating food. It's incredible the different, trans, the, the different events that take place when people eat. Now, here in the United States, you invite people to eat in a restaurant because when the meal is over, the meeting is over. <laughs> and you don't stick around a long time because you get on and you get up and you go do whatever else it was that you were going to do. And I remember we had some friends visiting us in uh, Alabama from Germany, and it was their anniversary, and they wanted to go out to eat. And I said, you know, you can get some really good steak at a good price if you go to Golden Corral. And so they went to Golden Corral as good Europeans, and they went through and they picked all the stuff they wanted to eat. And then they, I told them, I said, you wait till the end and then you ask for coffee and they'll bring you coffee, you know. So they're sitting in this place and they're eating their dessert and they're getting their coffee. And they're watching the people and talking about all the people that they see coming in and out. And the waitress ended up not waiting on them anymore because after about three hours, she was wondering why they didn't leave. <laughs> that they didn't give up their seat so that they could put more people there to make more money. And so, and they didn't realize that the Germans have an entirely different understanding of what it means to go out and eat. And so uh, when we got invited, say, to somebody's house in Germany for breakfast, um, you would come in and they would set up the table with beautiful napkins and flowers and, and they would have little special gifts for the, for the visitors that came. And then they would cook this beautiful um, breakfast and have beautiful different kinds of rolls. I don't know, half a dozen at least different kinds of rolls and all these different spreads and meats and cheese that you put on. And you would sit there and would have this lovely breakfast and it would last a couple of hours because you would enjoy the development of friendship while you're talking and eating and drinking your coffee. And uh, so you don't go for just a little bit of time. In France, when we went to uh, go out to eat, 
if you made a reservation at a restaurant, say there's lots of little restaurants with eight or ten tables, but if you made a reservation, you had that table for the entire evening. It was not given to anybody else. It was your table. So you would come in to eat maybe at eight o'clock at night, and you could stay till 11, and uh, nobody expected anything else. You had that table. And then they would feed you five, six different courses of very little bits. <laughs> and then they had this thing in, in France that if you went out to eat, it didn't make any difference where you went. Every restaurant had to provide a full menu for you at a base price. So you could go to any restaurant and for very inexpensive money, at least get a good meal. You might not get all their best stuff, but you would get something to eat and it was available to everybody in the country. Um, in Spain, you wouldn't start eating till about nine o'clock at night and you'd like to sit outdoors. And the reason for that, of course, is that you slept all afternoon and all the, all the stores would close up between 12 and three or four and so you know by the time you had your nap and then got up and did your business you never got away until late at night and then you would sit down and enjoy your meal in china this was interesting while we were in china we we went uh in beijing we went to a uh, uh a restaurant and uh, um these people had been on the tour with us of the uh, of the of, of the big Chinese wall, you know the what do they call it, the Great Wall of China, and and we had seen panda bears and stuff. And on the bus, nobody spoke to us. Nobody. When we got to the restaurant, we're sitting down at this table. There's about ten of us at this table, and in the middle of the table, you've got this um, lazy Susan. And all the food goes on the Lazy Susan except your rice. Your rice goes into your own bowl and you shovel that into your mouth with your chopsticks. You shovel it in like this and chomp and you have to chomp because if you don't smack your lips, you must not be enjoying it. And then the food on the Lazy Susan as it goes around, you just sort of reach out, pick it up, stick it in your mouth. And, and, and so everybody's eating from the stuff on the Lazy Susan. Or you have a big hot pot and that's cooking in the middle of the table and so this food is boiling up this sauce that's there usually very spicy and then they start putting all kinds of stuff in it, vegetables and meat and everything and you just sort of reach into it with your chopsticks and pull it out and eat it so everybody's eating out of the same pot and what's happening is that you're having a community event so the germans say your eye eats with you. So that means that the food is not just to smell good and taste good. You have to have everything else around you looking good. If I'm in China, you are all eating together. And it was amazing that though nobody spoke to us on the bus when we sat down to eat, they didn't stop talking to us. At the, at the table, we started to have all this conversation. In Uganda, you would sit down on the ground, somebody would come around with a pot of water and you'd hold your hands out and they'd give you a little bar of soap and you'd wash your hands and then they'd rinse it and then you would eat with your hands. So you would reach into the rice and grab a little bit and their saying was that, you know, you don't just smell the food, you don't just taste the food, 
it won't taste good unless it feels good. And so they're, they're mashing all this food together in their hands, talking to one another before they actually put it into their mouth to eat. In the Middle East, this is how we ate. We always had bread. The bread was, uh, this is proper, what we would call Arabic bread. And so it opens up. And you would take a little bit like this, and then you would start to scoop it up with salad or meat or anything else from a common dish, and everybody would eat it to, together out of one dish, but you never double dipped. No double dipping. So you always got the right size of bread that you wanted to eat, and you would stick that in your mouth, and you would eat it. And you had all kinds of, of uh, uh, traditions that coming in from outside, you would have no idea. Um, but they used to have clay pots that they would put water in. This was interesting. And it would have a spout at the top and a little hook where you could put your finger in. I, I wish I had one of these because you would put the water in and the water would seep through the clay pot. And in the heat that would come up, it would keep the water cool without ice. And so wherever you would go, you would see these pots and people would drink. And I'd love to take Americans around to these places and say, look, this is how you do it. It's just real simple. You take the, 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 the water jug like this and you pour it like this. And so I'm, I'm holding this pot out here. The water's coming down. I'm drinking it and, and pull it down and stop and say, help yourself. And every single American I can think of couldn't swallow while they were drinking it. And the water would go out of their mouth and it would just get them all wet and they, they would sputter. I would laugh. I thought, these silly Americans, they just don't know how to, to do it properly. And, and it was just so funny. But they were accustomed to drinking out of glasses. All these different, and there's a lot more that I could tell you about. One of the favorite things that missionaries talk about is food and how people eat it. And so depending on where you are, it's it, varieties, rice, and all of these things have something in common. It's not primarily about the food. It's primarily about the family and the interaction and what happens at the table. That what happens is a building of relationships and understanding, a listening to one another and an experience that is going to establish something, a bond between the people that are there. I, I remember when we were under so much stress building our mission and, and uh, I was always on the road and I was traveling here and there and Jan was critical. She said, we have to do something with our teenage kids. So you will be home for lunch. And we will have our lunch at 1 o'clock. And between 1 o'clock and 2 o'clock or 2.30, you will turn off your phone. You will not answer the door. You will do nothing but sit at the table and listen to your daughters. <laughs> it was probably the best time that helped us get through the teenage years with our girls. 
And I would sit there, and of course they went to German schools, and the stuff that they talked about and discussed, I, I couldn't believe. And they would come home, and after a few weeks, they got comfortable to share with us what actually was being taught and what their friends said. And I'm sitting there holding on to my seat, not wanting to go kill somebody, because I'm sitting there going, you know, you don't do that. That's, how, where do they talk about stuff like this? You know, I mean, I'm, like, I'm the only guy at the table, you know, <laughs> you can't talk like that. And I, I, I just, but something happened that our girls still feel they can come and talk to us about anything. There was a bond that was built because my wife set aside a time of priority. It used to be for our sons, but we did it at breakfast time, but that was so quick, we had to rush through devotions, we had to rush through prayers and, and eat real quick to get to school. And so what we did was when the girls got off of school, in Germany they went just a half day and, and six days a week, and so that uh, they would be home for lunch. And so when I was home, uh, I, I had to be there. And I, I'm so grateful for learning those kinds of things. See, the food is not just about the food. And let's put that in the back of our minds as we read this story. Okay? Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all these things that had taken place. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some, some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ, for the Messiah, to suffer these things and to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he would go farther. 
And they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. And it came about that when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them, and their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they arose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Father, just add your blessing to this. There is a tremendous amount of detail in this story. I, I know that as we've gone through the, the, the story that Luke has written, he, he has to gloss over a lot of things. And, but here, on the day of the resurrection... He has put a lot of detail for us because I think that these are foundational both to the wrestling that the early church had trying to understand with the shock that has gone into their system with the death of Jesus and now his disappearance from the tomb. How do they deal with that? And they're wrestling with that. They're trying to understand it and they're still caught up in an old mentality, the traditions that have been handed down to them by centuries of the workings of their fathers, their forefathers, what has been taught to them in the, in the temple and in the synagogues, and, and they're, they're, they've got this short mentality, this short-sightedness, and they haven't understood either how to interpret the Old Testament, which has become a set of rules and regulations and laws for them to follow, and they are doing their best to please God by doing that. And now, here's this event. They haven't really listened to Jesus, even though the women came back and told them what the angels had said. Remember what he said to you. And the women remembered it. And they're telling that to these two who were present there. They belong to the eleven and the rest from verse 9. And so we, we know that they're sitting there still wrestling with this issue. How do we deal with what these women have said? How do we understand what has transpired and taken place? How do we deal with our grief? How do we deal with, with our, our, our learning, our understanding? How does it all fit together? We thought that he was going to redeem Israel and become the next king, but somehow that hasn't happened and our rulers have, have taken him away from us, and all the people were, were, he was a prophet, he was mighty in word and deed, and all the things that he did. And Jesus comes up and walks with them and says, well, what are you talking about? He said, are you the only one who, who doesn't understand what's happened? The review that they go through is fascinating because that becomes the cornerstone of the gospel message. 
the review that they just gave to Jesus about himself, <laughs> to him, <laughs> is that who he was, what he did, how he was betrayed, who betrayed him, and now we're trying to deal with what's going on. We haven't comprehended it. And Jesus turns to them. This term foolish is not that he's calling them fools. He's saying that they are struggling with issues and being slow of heart. That's a better, a better translation. They're slow of heart to believe. They're struggling, but they're not comprehending to the point of faith. I, I, I find that fascinating. If, if I take one look at this, these two are wrestling with the issues... They're struggling to understand the nature and purpose of the Old Testament. They're trying to figure out how Jesus can be prophet and Messiah and die. And what's this about him not being there and you don't find the living one amongst the dead? And how does that... You can imagine that this is a struggle. And they're people who have been with Jesus. They had hoped that he was going to be the redemption of Israel. They're bewildered about the report of the resurrection. And we read here, too, that it wasn't just Peter that got to the tomb, but there were others also and found it empty. And this is critical because in this narrative, it's been repeated several times by people who were not anticipating or expecting it, but they were eyewitnesses to an empty tomb. Not just any empty tomb, the one that Jesus had been in. The reason why much of this is significant is because we need to understand that we are not dealing with a philosopher. We're not dealing with a wise man. We're not dealing with a good man. We're not dealing with a great teacher. We're not dealing with someone who has great insight. We're not dealing with a fellow who, who can uh, amaze you with his signs and wonders and deeds. We are talking about the one who is powerful and eternal and possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. And the difference needs to be clear. The people who had followed Jesus, who had been with him, had seen the miracles, heard him teach, seen the power, seen all of this stuff, are struggling with faith. <clears throat> Just walking down the street, going through all these issues just because they had seen what Jesus did, had heard the things that Jesus himself had said, didn't mean that they had faith. <laughs> Sitting in a church, listening to the best preachers in the world, will not necessarily get you saved. 
Uh-oh. It's not a matter of education. It's not a matter of interpretation. It's not a matter of trying to figure <coughs> everything out. I, I love that. We did this one sketch with young people about the, the answer. What is the answer? And uh, these kids were playing this thing out. I remember particularly in Romania. And, and they were saying, well, you know, alcohol is the answer. Or, or uh, parties are the answer. Or education is the answer. And, and each time it fails. And finally, Jesus is the answer. And, and so it was an interesting little sketch that they put together. And our girls were just real little at the time. And so we're going back home in the car driving from, uh, from central Romania back to Germany. It's a 24-hour ride, and, and the kids are in the back seat, and they're going over this little sketch. And uh, Naomi, in her, she, she's very clever. Even as a little girl, she was real clever. And she's going through all this, you know, partying is the answer. No, it's not. Execution is the answer. <laughs> she mixed up education with execution. I thought, <laughs> I thought maybe there's more truth to that than she knows. <laughs> I, I'm sitting here thinking that all the things that we assume are the answer are not. I mean, seriously, these people had been with Jesus when he was doing the miracles, when he's teaching, when he's touching uh, lives all over, they've been there. They have seen him dying on the cross from afar. <coughs> they know the women that went to the tomb to anoint his body. They heard their report when they came back and were struggling to understand it. Isn't that interesting? They had the women's report, the angels' report, they had the scriptures, the teachings of Jesus, the acts of Jesus, and it's still not enough. And Jesus sits down, and I love this. He says to them that is it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory. It, shouldn't you, in all of your study and all of your reading and memorization of the Old Testament, shouldn't you have realized that the Messiah had to suffer and be glorified? And that the kingdom of God is not something of this world, but it's something... <clears throat> beyond? Didn't you understand that? I'm glad he doesn't just get mad at them and, 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 and sort of say you're a lost cause. Instead, he turns around and he does something that I wish somebody had written down because I want to read it. I want to hear it. One day when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Cleopas, could you please tell me what Jesus told you on the road to Emmaus? I would like to know what he said. <laughs> I want to know if I got any of it right. <laughs> but he gives them the key 
to understanding the Old Testament. He gives them the insight that is necessary for the Old Testament to come alive. All this time, the leaders and the chiefs who had crucified Jesus, who are guilty of that, had not been instructing the people in the reality of what the Old Testament is about. In the Old Testament, and the prophets beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and later he talks about the Psalms, we're going to see that he explained to them the things concerning himself. The entire Old Testament is a prophetic understanding to prepare a people for the coming of the Messiah. And they made out of it a system of rules and regulations that if you are really spiritual, you will behave like this. <clears throat> Whereas the message of redemption and reconciliation, the, 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 the ransoming of Israel is going to be the ransoming of the Gentiles as well because it is going to be a Messiah who comes to destroy the works of the enemy. He's the one who will redeem your life from destruction, who will cancel the sin that you have done, who will call you into relationship with the living God. And that your life, though it's not perfect, you will be a saint in the presence of God, a child of His, someone who will have an eternal existence because you are loved. I'm sitting there thinking all of that is the message from Genesis to Malachi. The whole focus and purpose when I begin to look back and read in the Old Testament my question every time regardless of what I'm looking at is where is Jesus in this story where is Jesus in the midst of this song some of it is very open and clear and some of it You've got to sit down and dig a little bit. But I want to tell you that that's what the early church began to do because they understood that the message was not just a message for Jews only. It was a message for the redemption of the world. Well, I started to take a look at this and their hearts are burning. They're listening to this. There's something going on on the inside of their lives. And they offer to him traditional Jewish hospitality and say, please stay with us. This is interesting. We'd like to hear more. Come and eat with us. And all Jesus does is when he gets together is he picks up the bread and he breaks it. The same thing that he did in the feeding of the 5,000. The same thing that he did at the Last Supper. The same thing that he's now doing with them. And in the breaking of the bread, something happens in their eyes. You see the Germans say, your eye eats with you. There's something about the entire setting that's important to building relationship. 
There's something about the food that you're sharing with one another, the meal that you're having, that starts to build a bond that says we belong together. The same thing that nourishes you is nourishing me. The same thing that gives you life is giving me life. We're at a foundation here of experiencing life together right here, sharing our words. And in that, their eyes are opened. You see, it wasn't just that they invited him for food. Their hearts were stirred and burning on the inside because that's where Jesus wants to establish his throne of rule and reign is in the hearts of men. The place where Jesus wants to be exalted is from the inside of your life. And when he breaks the bread, their eyes are opened. And they see Jesus. It's not, see, this isn't, this isn't just a prophet. This isn't just a philosopher. This isn't just a teacher. For the first time, maybe, they really see the Son of God who had given and broken his life for them. I don't know that they actually ate a morsel. I don't know whether they had a drink of water or not. I have no idea, but their lives at that moment were infused with strength, with power. Their lives were transformed. They got up immediately and ran the seven miles back to Jerusalem. Why? Because the gospel does not happen in terms of individuals. It happens in terms of community. They had to tell somebody that they had met Jesus and who to tell than the very people who had spent their lives with Jesus and hadn't seen him. They ran back to tell them, we've seen the Lord. They discovered that Simon had already had an encounter with him. The women had had an encounter. And now they're sitting down together, just absolutely overwhelmed. The resurrection is real. The resurrection is true. It's not just that somebody stole a body. Here is Jesus alive and well here in our midst. And from the very beginning, we see the entire intention of how the church is to live and to function. It functions because people share what they have experienced. They reproduce the life that they have themselves encountered, and it is multiplied in community. It's not something for me personally. It's not something for me just to hide myself in when I get a hold of the fact that Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. He lives and he rules and reigns from the hearts of people. He will rule and reign from your heart. And when the king says to do something, it's not just a good suggestion. When the king tells you to do something, it's time to do it. I, I, 
I am overwhelmed by how real this story is. I'm overwhelmed by the fact that there's probably not one of us here that doesn't wrestle with the issues of the theologies that we've heard. But what matters <laughs> is that our eyes are opened to see Jesus. And he doesn't hide himself from any of us. He is there for us to encounter. I have heard people in different countries feel that a pastor's job is to kind of rule over the people that are his sheep and make sure that they're living right and so they can just show up on their doorstep and walk in and, and tell them what to do and put it all right for them. Uh, and I don't believe that's the job of a pastor at all. You, you have to give an account of your life to God. I, I don't give an account of your life to God. But if Jesus is alive, I need to be able to trust him to lead and guide you in your life. If Jesus is alive, I can trust him to bless you and work with you and bring you safely through this life to an eternal one. And when we start to experience a renewal of how our eyes are open to Jesus reaching in and being compassionate, I realize that this kind of encounter transforms us from the inside out. It moves us away from sin through repentance. That's just the beginning, but we end up starting to grow, and growth and trust in God are, 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 are part of the same thing. Here we go from... from uh, moving away from sin to be, filling, be filled with God's love, from being right to being compassionate, from, from anger to being forgiving, from being a slave to evil to seeing God at work in all things to bring about his goodness in and through us. Suddenly, the transformation is important and the change is not something that I am working at, it's something that God does a work within me to produce his life through me. I begin to look at the results. The results is that it happens in community. It happens in families. It happens because we share it and enjoy it. We get excited about the things that Jesus continues to do in and through our lives, and we share the pain, we rejoice with one another, we laugh with those who are rejoicing, and we cry with those who are mourning. We share life as Jesus shares his life with us. And in this way, life is going to be reproduced and multiplied doesn't happen all at once, but it does continue to grow with the patience of Jesus, first in our own Jerusalem and then beyond. I was blessed this morning. I didn't talk about any missionary activity for our prayer time, and yet when you listen to our prayers, 
the world is touching our hearts and we're responding to it. In a house of prayer, I look at that and I'm thinking that is so exciting to see the individual growth and expansion of what God is doing in our lives and hearts. Of course we want him to touch us in our lives and our families, but it's not just about us. We're not the center of the universe. And then we want to see God continue to move with power. We want to see that power flowing through us as well, don't we? And in, I believe that this is the beginning of the foundation, both in terms of what message do we share, how do we share it with the energy and excitement do we share it, and finally, how do we understand the scriptures when we're reading them? How do the scriptures bring us life and not death? How do the scriptures show us Jesus? How do we get excited about the things that we discover when we discover Jesus in the scriptures? How do we share that? With whom do we share it? That becomes part of the life that is just bubbling up inside those who've had an experience of sitting down and eating with Jesus. Father, we want to thank you for your